Well, last week we talked about how the Reformation spread over land throughout Europe, and this week we're going to talk about how the Reformation spread overseas uh, into England and started the English Reformation. Our scripture reading this week is going to be from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And we'll see why this scripture uh, comes into play a little bit later on. Uh, but before we begin, let's say a word of prayer to the Lord. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the Reformation. And Lord, we thank you for uh, bold men who were willing to uh, ultimately sacrifice uh, much so that we could have the gospel and have it in our own language in a way that we can understand and that we could know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the most endangered creature in the world is the northern white rhinoceros. They are extinct in the wild, and there are only 10 remaining in captivity. This guy here is the only surviving male, and he has armed guards 24 hours a day. He's under desperate pressure to produce a male heir if the species is going to survive. Well, the second most endangered species in the world was to be the wife of Henry VIII because they too struggled to produce male heirs. And the third most endangered species in the world was to be a Protestant in England when the monarch was Catholic or to be a Catholic in England when the monarch was Protestant. Henry VIII became King of England after the death of his father, Henry VII, in 1509. At this time, England and Spain were allies. Henry VII wanted to further that alliance and pledged his son Arthur, his firstborn and heir to the throne, to marry Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain and the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Arthur married Catherine at 15 years old, but four months later, he died. And Spain proposed that the next son in line, Henry VIII, marry Catherine. But the law of the church prohibited a man's marriage to his brother's widow, so they had to get permission from the Pope. When Henry VIII was old enough, they got married. There was only one child, a daughter named Mary Tudor. When no son was produced, Harry wanted to annul the marriage to Catherine of Aragon on the basis that the Pope broke church law in allowing the marriage in the first place, and therefore that the marriage was illegitimate. Well, Pope Clement VII was in a tough position because now he had to decide whether to offend Ferdinand and Isabella and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was Catherine's nephew, or to offend King Henry. He chose to offend Henry and not grant the annulment. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, uh, this guy, was the king's religious consultant, and he suggested that Henry get advice from the main Catholic universities about how to handle this situation. And of course, uh, they wanted to please Henry, so they told Henry that his marriage was not valid. 
So then Henry started to make laws that put the clergy under his authority rather than the popes. But Henry was no supporter of Protestantism. Luther challenged authority, and Henry didn't like challenges to authority unless he was the one doing the challenging. Henry didn't want a religious reformation. His motivation was political. He wanted to restore the rights of the king against the meddling of the pope. While Cranmer had been appointed Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in England, and that's a very prestigious position, and his vision uh, to have the church under royal authority and not the pope's authority. And in 1534, Parliament ruled that Henry's marriage to Catherine was not legitimate, and so that meant that the daughter of the marriage, Mary Tudor, was not legitimate. They made Henry the supreme head of the Church of England, and this new Church of England had no confession or creed. It was just Henry's tool to avoid papal authority. And as soon as Henry was made head of the church, he formally annulled his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and announced that he had already married Anne Boleyn. Well, unfortunately for Anne, she was only able to produce one child, and her name was Elizabeth. She was accused of adultery and lost her head in the Tower of London. The king then married Jane Seymour, who finally gave birth to a son whose name was Edward. Uh, Jane died a natural death, and then Henry, to make alliance with German Lutherans, uh, married this woman, Anne of Cleves, uh, a sister-in-law of one of the leading German Protestant princes. Uh, he married her sight unseen. He had never seen her before, uh, and he was not pleased when he saw her. Uh, apparently, she was not all that attractive. And Henry hated her and divorced her and had the man who arranged the marriage beheaded. There were no children of that marriage. Henry then married Catherine Howard, but he beheaded her also. And finally, he married Catherine Parr, who bore no children but somehow survived Henry. Henry died in 1547, but before he did, he had agreed with Parliament that the order of succession would be Edward, and then Mary Tudor, and then Elizabeth. Edward was, of course, the son, so he would be first. Mary Tudor, the oldest daughter, and then Elizabeth, the youngest daughter. Well, Edward VI became king when he was only eight years old. And because he was so young, the Duke of Somerset served as his co-king for three years. And in that time, the church gave the wine back to the common people instead of reserving it for the priests only. Priests were allowed to marry, Images were removed from the church, and Cranmer had written what was called the Book of Common Prayer that gave the English people a liturgy in their own language. And so there was hope for Protestants in England. But unfortunately, Edward was a sickly child, and he died at only 14 years old. And his sister, Mary Tudor, then became queen. Now remember that she is the daughter of the disgraced Catherine of Aragon, and she's Catholic, and she wants to restore Catholicism in England because the Catholic Church said that Henry and Catherine of Aragon's marriage was legitimate, and that would make her the legitimate queen. And to strengthen her political position, she married her Catholic cousin, Philip II of Spain. In 1554, Mary pledged allegiance to the Pope and undid almost all of what Henry and Edward VI before her had done. Feast days of the saints were restored, and married clergy were ordered to get rid of their wives. 
open persecution of Protestant leaders became the policy of Mary's reign. She burned 300 and imprisoned many others, and for her dastardly deeds, she was given the name that you all know, Bloody Mary. One of her victims was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. He was condemned as a heretic and publicly executed. Mary's marriage produced no children, and she died of cancer in 1558. Elizabeth was the next in line. She was the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, and many Protestants who had fled to the European mainland for fear of their lives while Mary was queen came back with ideas of Zwingli and Calvin. And Elizabeth had the same motivations to restore Protestantism that Mary had to abolish it. If Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was legitimate, then she would be the illegitimate child of Henry and Anne. But she was a strong woman, and she never entertained the idea that she was not the legitimate heir to the throne. Her ideal was a middle way between what she saw as extreme Protestantism on one side and Roman Catholicism on the other side. She wanted to unite the kingdom in worship, and there was room for anyone who was not too extreme in either direction. And she revised Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer to accommodate all. So on the Lord's Supper, it read, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which accommodated Lutherans and Catholics who believed that the bread and wine become the body of Jesus. And then it went on to say, Take and eat this in remembrance of that Christ died for thee, which accommodated Calvinists and Zwingliists who said that the Eucharist was simply a memorial service where we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Well, Mary Stuart was Elizabeth's Catholic cousin, and she was the Queen of Scotland and the great-granddaughter of Henry VIII. She was next in line to the throne of England after Elizabeth, and some Catholics conspired to have Elizabeth declared illegitimate so that Mary Stuart could assume the throne. But this was dangerous business. Elizabeth found out about an assassination plot against her called the Babington Plot, and she killed all involved, including Mary Stuart. And that was the end of the threat. Toward the end of Elizabeth's reign came the rise of the Puritans. Puritans were given that name because they didn't think that Elizabeth's reforms went nearly far enough, and they envisioned a church that restored the pure practices and doctrines of the New Testament. They wanted to purify the church. Elizabeth died in 1603, leaving no direct heir, and surprisingly, she had chosen Mary Stuart's son James, who was already King, King James VI of Scotland, as her heir as James I of England. Scotland had been heavily influenced by John Knox, who brought Calvinism to Scotland. The Church of England still practiced many of the uh, practices of Catholicism, like wearing priestly robes and celebrating communion on an altar, Puritans hoped that the church in England would look a lot more like the church in Scotland under James. They wanted to devote Sunday to religious exercises and doing acts of charity. They rejected the Book of Common Prayer and the use of written prayers because they thought that rote prayers become meaningless over time. Some Puritans even wanted to have congregations that were completely independent of all other congregations, and so they were called independents. Baptists arose from these independents, not from the Anabaptist movement, as you might think. John Smith is known as the father of the Baptists. 
He started an independent church, which was illegal in England, but it was successful. When the congregation grew, they fled to Holland, but other congregations, Baptist congregations, arose, and then they divided over whether they were Calvinist or Arminian in their theology. Those with the, that were Arminian became known as General Baptists because they believed that Jesus died generally for all. That's unlimited atonement. Those that were Calvinists became Particular Baptists because Jesus only died for the particular elect, and that's limited atonement. Those Puritans that did not flee from England were very concerned now that James was king. His mother had been Catholic, and they feared that he would return the Church of England to her Catholic leanings. And Catholics had the same fears. Since Scotland was more Calvinistic, they thought that James would move England more toward Calvinism. And James tried to play it down the middle, as Elizabeth had done. James tolerated Catholics who he deemed extreme on the one end and Puritans who he thought were extreme on the other end. But he would not abandon the Episcopal system of church government, which was government by bishops, because the bishops were his strongest supporters. And Puritans saw this as a step toward reintroducing Catholicism in England. Well, as you were all taught in grammar school in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He discovered America for Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And since that time, Spain had been colonizing what is now known as Mexico and Florida. France followed and settled in what is now known as Canada. I think they each came and saw Newark Airport in New Jersey and said no thanks and left what became known as America to England. In the 1580s, the first English settlers came to Virginia, which had been named by Walter Raleigh for the Virgin Queen Elizabeth. After she died and James I became king, some Puritans came to Virginia at Jamestown in 1607. But Jamestown was not religiously, but economically motivated. They were following the Spanish who colonized the South and were becoming rich. James would not let them be a reformed territory, and they resembled the Anglican Church of England with its Episcopal government by bishops. But in Massachusetts, these pilgrims were religiously motivated. Pilgrims were Puritans who had given up on reforming the Church of England and wanted to establish their own church in the New World. First, they left England for Holland, and then James financed the Pilgrim's Voyage on the Mayflower to the New World. They landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. And then more Puritans came 10 years later and formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was still part of the Church of England. But with England an ocean away and religiously motivated to reform the church, they became congregational, meaning that they governed themselves rather than Anglican or Episcopal, meaning that they were governed by bishops appointed by the king. Well, when James died and his son Charles I became king, antagonism against the Puritans increased in England. Puritans began to be seen as dissenters. Charles didn't care much about their theology. He just didn't want his authority to be challenged or to be told what to do by a bunch of religious crazies. He had the same attitude toward Parliament, though. He basically saw himself as appointed by God, and he didn't want his authority challenged. 
In the middle of the 1600s, there was a civil war in England between those who supported, supported Charles and those who supported Parliament, many of whom were Puritans. The Parliament army won this war under Oliver Cromwell, and Charles I was beheaded. Cromwell ruled over England for about 12 years. He was an independent, but he tried to develop a religious system with room for Presbyterians, Puritans, Baptists, and moderate Anglicanism. But when he died, there was no suitable replacement for him, and the monarchy was restored. Charles II became king, and he was quite angry that his father's head had been cut off. He reestablished Anglicanism and the Book of Common Prayer and began to zealously persecute Christ uh, Puritans, who he held responsible for his father's death. And these Puritans began to leave for the New World in droves. While the people leaving England and coming to America over these years were not one huddled mass with the th same theology and practice, they were various kinds of religious groups seeking independence. Puritans stressed believing in the absolute sovereignty of God, the total depravity of man, and the complete dependence of human beings on divine grace for salvation, and you had to have a personal religious experience, and that'll become important. Quakers were the opposite of Puritans. They were called Quakers by those who saw their religious enthusiasm had caused them to tremble, and so they called them Quakers. Quakers rejected predestination, original sin, and didn't want any form of church government at all. And they were not well received in Puritan Massachusetts. The Puritans saw them as heretics and persecuted them, and they fled for Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania was, and still is, a melting pot for various denominations, including Quakers and the Pennsylvania Dutch or Amish. If you go to the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch country, you can still see the Amish riding around on their horses and buggies there. Eastern New Jersey was Puritan, while Western New Jersey was predominantly Quaker. Uh, Roger Williams arrived in Massachusetts, but left because of what he perceived as the intolerance of the Puritans. He founded Rhode Island and started a Baptist church there. Maryland started years earlier as a Catholic colony under a charter from Charles I to the Catholic Lord Baltimore. Unitarians came from England. They denied the Trinity. They had no creed or confession either. Their movement took off during the 18th century and the age of deism under our founding fathers. Eventually, they merged with the Universalists, who believe that in the end, everyone will be saved. Methodists came later in the 1700s, led by John Wesley, who followed Arminian theology. What all these denominations have in common is that they wanted religious freedom from all things Catholic and were not willing to accept any involvement from the state. The Puritans dreamed of a utopian society, a city on a hill where godliness permeated every fabric of society from home life to government. They thought it could work, but they didn't properly account for the fact that humans are very sinful creatures. To enforce their ideal, they had to persecute other groups, and they had no way to account for how the next generation of children would behave. You can't guarantee that your children are going to be believers, and you can't guarantee that they will buy into your dreams. And so it was pretty apparent very early on that the experiment would ultimately fail. 
The halfway covenant is an example of how Puritans tried to continue their ideal. It was developed when several children of the first generation of Puritans had not yet had a personal religious experience, which meant that they were not full members of the church. You had to be baptized and have a religious experience to be full members of the church. And when these children had children of their own, the question was whether these children should even be baptized since their parents had not had a religious experience and were not full members of the church. The halfway covenant in 1662 allowed the children to be baptized but did not allow them uh, to receive communion or to vote in church affairs until they proved that they had some kind of religious experience of their own. This obviously created dissension and bitterness as time went on in the congregation, as some were not allowed to participate, and Puritan optimism began to wane. In 1691, a new charter gave people the right to vote based on property ownership rather than church membership. And finally, at the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, uh, Puritan zeal for purity reached its natural conclusion when people are in charge of creating utopia. Some girls spread a rumor that witchcraft was being practiced in Salem. Puritan paranoia and zeal to keep their ideal pure resulted in a witch hunt that led to the hangings of 20 people. It became increasingly clear that the Puritan ideal could not be maintained by force or by zeal. Human nature is what it is. Uh, even if every member of the government and society were Christian, the Puritan experiment proves that even if Billy Graham were president and Chuck Swindoll were vice president and we had Christians in every important cabinet position, we will never have utopia on earth until Jesus returns. But these Puritans did have great intentions. They wanted to have a a city on a hill, and they wanted to have a Christian society. And their zeal is admirable. I wish we had half of the Puritan zeal uh, that they had in our church today. Well, even though the Puritan experiment failed, on the bright side, we did get the greatest country in the world. And the Puritans produced some of the greatest books ever written, and we got Thanksgiving out of the deal, too. Aside from persecuting each other, the, persecu the, the Puritans persecuted turkeys mercilessly, a happy tradition that was passed down through the centuries. So, what did we get out of the Reformation? We recovered the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. We got the Bible in our own language. We got increased literacy because Protestants encourage Bible reading. We got religious freedom, and we got the five solas. What are they? We are saved by grace alone, not because of anything in us, but because God graciously chose to save us. We are saved through Christ alone, not through Mary, not through saints, not by the church, not by the sacraments, through Christ and his work alone. We are saved by faith alone. We are not saved by any works that we do. We do works after we are saved, but our works do not merit anything toward our salvation. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved based on the authority of Scripture alone, and we are saved for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. Well, what did we learn from the Reformation? We learned that people who are passionate 
and zealous for God can be used greatly by God. We learned that right theology matters. We learned that the church can easily lose its way when bad theology is present. We learned that all of our work has value, not just the work of the clergy, because we are all the priesthood and we can all preach the gospel. We learned that the challenge of our transfer of our faith from one generation to the next is a difficult challenge. We learned the limits of our own ability and the need to depend on God. But we also learn that Christ is faithful to preserve his church in spite of human sin. We learn that our hope is not in government or any other human institution. It's in Christ alone. And so I thank God for the Reformation. I don't think that there has been an event with more eternal significance in human history outside the Bible than Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. I don't think it's too much to say that each one of us owes our own salvation in some way to the work of the Reformers and their legacy because through them, the gospel was recovered and preached so that we could hear it and receive it. So let's thank God for the Reformation and go to him in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the Reformation. Uh, in your wisdom and in your sovereign knowledge, in the proper time, you decided that it was time that the gospel be recovered and Martin Luther was your instrument that started the fire, and there were other reformers that followed him and other reformers that followed them. And Lord, we know some of their names and many others we don't know, Lord, but we are thankful for each and every one of them who risked their lives uh, to spread the gospel, who recognized that the gospel and Jesus are the most precious things in the universe. And uh, Lord, they, they did what they had to do, and they, they did it even at the expense of their own lives uh, so that the gospel could be spread. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you have chosen us to have heard the gospel and to understand the gospel and to accept your gracious offer of salvation uh, through the death and resurrection of your son. And Lord, we're just so grateful for it. Uh, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.